0: Reading from the Gospel according to John, chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Then Peter and the other disciple set out and went toward the tomb.
1: Well, happy Easter and happy Resurrection Day, and thank you for being here. If you're new to the church, my name is Pastor Kevin Robertson. I'm the pastor here, believe it or not. And uh, and I was thinking about this, that when I was doing the worship set, I was thinking, good grief, I've been preaching 20 Easter sermons. Amen. There's nothing to celebrate. So I'm just pulling up last year's sermon, because none of you remember it. But no, that's not the case. And then I thought about this: 36 years that I've been participating in Easter services. And my first Easter service was in 1963. Now, if you grew up in the church like me, let me tell you, I'm going to give my condolences to you. You are messed up. You really are. And take pride in that, too. Because just a few years ago, I just realized that I was becoming very religious Instead of relational with Jesus Christ. And so therefore it became a routine rather than, a, than a, an experience. And so sometimes we go through the motions of Christianity. We go through the motions of doing this. But we say, why? And there's no life within us. And I thank God that he can redeem a pastor. That can be so excited. Like this is his first Easter message. You know, when I was 12 years old, and this is what happens when you pay attention to a guest pastor. And uh, this is a typical pastor illustration in the 1970s. They say this, and tell me if you're familiar with this. If you, were to, uh, if you were to be arrested for being a Christian, remember that? Would you be found guilty, or would there be enough evidence to find you guilty? Now, at 12 years old, I'm saying, doggone it, I don't want to be arrested. I'm just liking girls now. And I'm not really into Jesus. And so, therefore, if I was arrested at 12 years old, it, was, it wasn't the evidence. It was planted on me because I was forced to go to church. <laughs> and then as an adult, I started thinking about this. If I was arrested for being a Christian, would I be guilty? Then I started thinking, well, it depends on the jury pool, right? <laughs> because if I had the Westboro Baptist Church, you know that church, the God hates everybody, I would not be found guilty. Now, if I was the jury pool, the left-wing liberals, yeah, I would definitely be found guilty. If it was a right-wing, I hope I would be found guilty. And so it's interesting, if you think about this, the evidence is determined on who is a jury, who is deciding if I'm a Christian or not a Christian. Then I'm fascinated because somehow we play a game like this, even in politics. There's a, uh, there's a, a president candidate named Mike Bertegig, I think I pronounced his last name. He called out uh, Pence about his view of Christianity and his view of sexuality and questioned his Christianity. And then Mike Pence snapped back at him say, well, that's not a real Christian. Then I remember when President Obama was president and he professed to be a Christian and the right wing said, no, you're not a Christian, you're a Muslim. And then now we have the right wing saying, isn't it great to have a president that's a follower of Jesus Christ? And the left wing says, no, it's not. And so I'm thinking about this. Where did this start? Where did this game start on who's in, who's out? Who's a Christian and who's not a Christian? In fact, if you look on the screen, why do we play the who is and is not a Christian game? Now, to tell you the truth, I, when I read the Gospels, the Gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're known as the good news, and I don't see Jesus playing this game. In fact, back on the screen, Jesus never seemed overly concerned about who is in the team God or not. But the religious leaders of that day were the ones who were obsessed with it. And so when I find myself being religious, and it's interesting because the Christian religion didn't develop until way after Jesus ascended into heaven. But the more religious that I become, the more that I'm realizing I'm playing the game who's in and who's out. So I started thinking, how did this begin? How did this start? If you look on the screen, the Christian religion has often attached itself to a personalized version of Jesus and missed out on what is called the risen Christ. Now, what do I mean by that? When we as Christians at 12 or 8 or 9 years old, when we accepted Jesus Christ, we're told to accept him because he's our personal Savior, correct? Correct. And that's totally biblical. I I totally understand. And the reason why is we understand that Jesus came down in a human form. Jesus loved us. We can touch him. We can understand him. We can relate to Jesus because he was a person. Now, here's the thing that I'm understanding here that when we have a personal, when we view Jesus as our personal Savior, what we end up doing is we personalize him. Now, I decided to Google called The Colors of Jesus. It's on the screen here. This is when we personalize Jesus, we make him look like us. Now, I grew up with a white Jesus. You know Jesus was not white. You know that, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, see, he's more like me. (laughs) Do you see how he personalized it? Historically, Jesus was a very darker skin. But somehow what we do is when we personalize Jesus, we make him look like us. And we make him be like us. Here's the problem with this on the screen. A personal relationship with Jesus is something which can easily become something else. I begin to make Jesus over into an object which meets all my needs, validates my beliefs, votes the way I do, even hates the same people and groups that I hate. This small, personalized Jesus is no longer God, but an idol I worship. It puts me in the center, and Jesus is just there to serve me and validate my motions of reality. Now, follow me here. Now, during the Good Friday service, we had seven little messages out of the last seven words of Jesus. And sometimes I kind of revert to my personalized Jesus, because my personalized Jesus was very strict. You don't cuss or are you going to rot. So, Brooke gets up there, he's teaching. And he goes like this. You know, let's say Hoover Dam is named it. Okay, you can figure out what he said. And I'm sitting there, going, I'm going to hell. We're all going to hell. <laughs> and and I, I go, Brooke, Brooke, did that just slip? He goes, no, if you looked at my notes, it was in there. I said... I don't look at the notes because I trust you guys. <laughs> so Brooke says, hey, dude, don't tell my mom, no, she'll kill me. <laughs> Mrs. Fenwick, where are you? <laughs> you need to pray for your son's salvation. Do <laughs> <laughs> you see how we could do that? We personalize our Jesus here. And so what's interesting we? we can't relate to a risen Christ like we do to a personalized Christ. It doesn't work and so I look at this Mary Magdalene story and I go man this just boom right out of my head here the difference between a personal Jesus and the risen Christ this is fascinating to me Mary Magdalene had a personal relationship with Jesus she knew Jesus personally in fact Jesus was close to her brother was close to her sister Martha And if you understand scripture, that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And so she loved Jesus. In fact, she had a perfume that was worth a year's salary, if you were making a minimum wage, about 30 grand. That basically she just used all that perfume to wash Jesus' feet. She was the one that was sitting listening to Jesus teach that basically her her sister Martha was so upset at her, she went to Jesus and said, Jesus, tell my sister to help me in the kitchen. And basically, Jesus said, look, Mary's doing what she needs to do. She loved him. So we start on the scripture here in verse 14. She turned around and saw Jesus standing there, and she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Supposing him to be a gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me, where have you laid him? And I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned to him and realized, and in Hebrew, which I can't pronounce in Hebrew, that it means teacher. Now I find it very interesting that Mary did not recognize the risen Savior. She only knew the personal friend of Jesus, and so therefore she didn't see him. She thought he was an ordinary gardener, but then Jesus takes it personal here. Jesus addresses him, her Mary, and then she gets it. She understands who Jesus is, and she's always called him Teacher. See, back on the screen, and immediately Jesus teaches Mary that her personal relationship with with him must change because he has become a risen Christ. That's why in verse 17, he says, Jesus said to her, Do not hold on to me because I have not ascended to the Father. But go to my brother and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father to my God and your God. Mary had, again, a personal intimate relationship, a friendship with Jesus. And this affirmed her personal, but it was a calling that she had to see Jesus in a totally different way now. That's why on the screen, do not hold on to me, Jesus is telling Mary that if she was to have a relationship with him as the risen Christ, she could not cling to him as her personalized Jesus. She would have to begin to look for him everywhere, even in the unlikely faces like that of a simple gardener. The risen Christ invites us to stop seeing him as a personalized Savior and seeing him as a risen Savior. See, on the screen, if you are truly experiencing the risen Christ, we must be willing to let go of our personalized version of Jesus. He is still personal. He still calls us by his name, but then asks us to, go and to let go of him before we personalize him into something that he is not. This is where we get in trouble. Jesus said something important here, and I like this. He said, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father, and your Father to my God and your God. Here's the thing. When we personalize Jesus, we personalize God at the same time. And so what happens here is we put God in a particular group. God is only in our denomination. God is only in that church. God is not in us. And then we sing songs that confirm this. We sing songs like, our God is bigger, stronger, and higher than, and I'm thinking, then what? Is it like, my dad can beat your dad up? My God can beat your God up? Did that intimidate you? Because I tried that with my wife, and it didn't work. And so this thing is basically, we try to say, you know what? God's not here to kick anyone's butt here. But the risen Christ does not let us get away with this mentality. Back on the screen. Jesus the Christ is ascending not just to his personal father and God, but to our father and God. The risen Christ reveals to us that God does not belong to any single person or group of people. Newsflash. Christ is not owned by American evangelicals. I, you know what I told. Let's take it out because I put white evangelicals in there, and I didn't. I, I didn't have enough guts to say it. I just said it, didn't I? <laughs> okay. The Apostle Paul tells us that all things are being gathered up in Christ to reveal in his fullness of time that God is all in all. That moves us from being the center of things to being gathered up in the universal of Christ. (coughs) That's why in Acts chapter 17, 28 it says, In Christ, all truly do live, move, and have their being. I know we love the personalized Jesus. I know we do, because I've personalized him and it's hard not to cling to them, and I get that. But it gives us a false sense of security when we do this. Because when we personalize Jesus, and he remains personalized, therefore what Jesus, what, who hurts me, Jesus does not like. We treat Jesus like a loyal friend, and we, and we treat him like Jesus is gonna get you too, or you're not a follower or anything like this. Then when it hits the fan in life, Our personalized Jesus does not give us the power and anointing that we need to make it through the difficult times. We question God. We question a lot of things because what we've personalized is not working. Back on the screen. With Christ, there is no sides. There is no side. There's only Christ and all are in Christ. There are just those who have been awakened to the reality of those who are still asleep to it. And like Mary Magdalene, our awakening often begins with a personal. It begins with a risen Christ calling us by name. Our temptation is to hold on to a certainty and personalize Jesus, but the risen Christ is too large, too large to hold on to. He shows us the way to ascend into the allness of God's love. As we follow the path by faith, pretty soon we will begin to realize that this great love is holding us and there is absolutely nothing to fear we are in christ and christ is in us this is what the apostle paul talks about in awakening when we do wake up and i put on the screen it's simply that you and i and this universe are a new creation thank god that i'm a new creation Christ called Mary by name, and her eyes were opened to see this new creation in the risen Christ. The new creation is here, but not everyone is awakened to it at the moment. That's why St. Paul says this. So then, from the point on, we won't recognize people by human standards, even though we used to know Christ by human standards. That isn't how we know him now. So then, if anyone is in Christ, that person is part of a new creation. The old things have gone away, and look. New things have arrived. Now, a couple of things I want to point out here that Paul says, he doesn't say how whoever believes in your personalized Jesus is a new creation. He doesn't say that. When you believe in your personalized Jesus, Jesus is separate from you. And you are in the center, and he's just an object here to serve you. That's the problem with this. Instead, he says, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. That's powerful. The second observation I made is that we we are in Christ because we see. In fact, Paul tells us to look, and he tells us to wake up and see it. He also tells us that we can't see it as long as we are still looking at Jesus in this typical human ego-based way. Back on the screen. If I keep looking at Jesus that way, if I, if I keep looking at Jesus that way, I only see a personalized Jesus who I think is there to keep me safely at the center of my own universe rather than to show me that I am really in the universe that is the risen Christ. Once I realize that I'm in the universe named Christ, I realize that everything else is in that same universe. This is where we get frustrated with God again. That basically we say, Lord, and this is where I'm totally frustrated with prosperity theology. Because prosperity theology does not work in Sudan. It doesn't work in Africa. They don't have anything. You can't imagine it and do it. And so therefore, this is where the personalized, where a lot of preachers will preach. If you serve Christ, personalized Christ, he's going to make your life perfect. My life is far from perfect, and I've been serving Christ all my life. But the thing is, it's not personalized. I serve a risen savior. This is why it's great. We celebrate the Eucharist, which is a communion, on a regularly to train our eyes to see a new reality. I come to eat and drink the body and the blood of Christ so the food can reveal who I really am. I am the body of Christ. The risen Christ is in me. You are the body of Christ. The risen Christ is in you. If we can recognize Christ in something as simple as bread and wine, then I can recognize Christ in everyone and everywhere. I hear his voice calling my name from a simple gardener. I see him in the eyes of those worlds considered least. I see his cross shape pattern and the new flowing from death. Everywhere as the universe graciously gives itself to my life, and I in turn... Give my, grac- my life graciously for the sake of others. As I call the worship team forward at this time, it's a good hint, isn't it? As I call the worship team at this time, <laughs> instead of doing smoke signals, I want to share something with you on a personal basis. We are awakened to Christ, and when we're awakened to Christ, fear is gone. I want to show you a picture. Do you remember my friend? Now, my friend, Bob Monagbonic, he's from the Philippines, and we've been good friends for 22 years. We get together on a weekly basis, and we pray for him. Last year, he came here, and he shared. To go back to the other one. He shared that he lost his brother in a tragic motorcycle accident. He's in his mid-40s. And I got a phone call from my brother. I got a phone call from him at an odd time, and I and I answered it because he's predictable. I said, "What is wrong?" And he said, "My brother was killed." I watched him. I don't give advice. You can't give advice. I lost a brother. I've never lost a brother. But where did he get his strength from? He was a risen Savior, not his personalized Savior. And then all of a sudden, last week, he gives me a call at an odd time again. And I answer the phone. I go, seriously, Bob, you're messing with my mind. I don't want to hear it. And he goes, my dad just died. This was last week. He was in the Philippines. He went out in the ocean just to cool off, had a heart attack and drowned. I go, good night. This personalized savior does not comfort, does not give us the strength that we need because we get mad at God and we just say, forget God, why is he allowing this?" But the risen savior is the one that gives us the power and the strength to move forward, to to be what he has called us to be. This is what the apostle Paul says. He goes, good luck in the prosperity theology because follow me in verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship, will distress, or persecution or famine or nakedness or pearl of sword as it is written for your sake we are being killed all day long we are accounted as sheep to be slaughtered no in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loveth for I am convinced get this neither death nor nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor power, nor height, nor death, no anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. This is what Paul is saying. So then I, I saw this picture. They had the funeral in the Philippines. And I said, let me quote Brooke. Damn it. I looked at the picture under the casket and that guy's still doing it. His perspective is the risen Savior. His perspective is not the personal Savior. And this is what gives us joy in the midst of suffering. This is what gives us hope in the midst of hopelessness. This is what gives us movement when we don't have enough strength to move anymore. This is what gives us breath when we want to hold our breath and just disappear. This is the resurrected power of Jesus Christ. This is the risen Savior, not the personal Savior. Personal Savior is a good start. But my prayer for all of us is that we will worship the risen Savior. Last screen. We are in Christ. So how can we be separated from what is already in? This morning, hear the voice of the risen Christ, call your name and wake up to the reality, there is a new creation, and you are in it. May God bless you, and may God bless you